preach here this morning, uh, but is uh, for a brief introduction, is a friend of mine for I think 13 or 14 years now. Uh, I got to know Matt while I was at the University of Florida, and he involved in a campus ministry. And Matt would come uh, once a semester, and when we would invite Matt to come, we would kind of clear our schedules because we knew Matt was going to hang out. Matt was going to play ultimate. Matt was going to eat all the bad food that college kids eat, play all the stupid video games that college kids play. And so I learned very much about incarnational ministry through Matt, his words, but also uh, just Matt. Um, uh, a few years down the road, Rach uh, actually got to work with and, and for Matt uh, at, in Boiling Springs, North Carolina, through uh, Crossroads Ministries and Gardner Webb University. And so Matt um, and his family have been uh, great friends for us, uh, mentors for us. Uh, I've learned so much in my, my Christian life about what it means to, to follow Jesus um, as a disciple, uh, to, to be a, a learner, and um, how to approach that through uh, joy. Uh, I don't know if I can say it today, but one of the words I learned from Matt is hilarity. Uh, and, uh, and, but also through through intention and, and, and through, um, through loving others creatively. And, uh, and so I'll invite uh, Matt Ward to come and, and share with us this morning. And I'm glad to do so. You're welcome. Um, And um, 
And I ended up planting where I was already living, in Bowling Springs, North Carolina. Pastored the church there for about 12 and a half years. Just recently resigned peacefully and uh, passed it on to the other leaders. But it's interesting to think about that sunroom. I'm pretty sure Wayne was there. I think Jason, you're met in there too. And so it's interesting to see at least four families out of that prayer circle that never planted together actually went and planted at least four other churches. Uh, so it is an honor and a blessing to be not just with good friends, but to be a part of something that you didn't know when you prayed about it, what it would look like in 14 years. And so here we are. On the other hand, um, I use the word blessing ironically this morning because uh, Pastor Chris gave me uh, Absalom to preach on today, and it's such a blessing. Like, you know, bless their hearts and not really mean it. The blessing of preaching on Absalom is uh, one of those things that even if I wanted to cheat as a pastor, uh, you're not going to find any sermons really online you can download and use. Today, you're on your own with Absalom, right? So, there's um, some scriptures that I would like to read to you today. Uh, we did not bless anybody in your congregation with the opportunity to read today's passage because it's full of some geographical locations and at least one tricky biblical name. So if you want to uh, follow along with me, I'll be reading from the NIV. I'm going to start with a two-verse passage in 2 Samuel chapter 14. Yeah, there we go. You follow along on the... Uh, multimedia explosion behind me, 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26, and then we'll skip over to 2 Samuel 15. Absalom covers a solid five or six chapters in the story and life of David. We'll just get some points and I'll, and I'll do some summary. Verse 25, in all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Nor was he photoshopped. He was the real deal. That's important. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. That's a positive there for you English majors. He would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard, or really in the footnotes, between four to five pounds of hair. Skipping over to 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. At the end of four years, and we'll get the context for that in a moment, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in, at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom, and they had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, not knowing anything about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Looking for biblical names for your children, might want to scratch that one off. Nathan's <laughs> counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us 
and put the city to the sword. Again, I didn't grow up uh, in church hearing much about this story, but maybe this morning we'll have some fun as we look at an original story that doesn't get much love in our devotions or sermons, and hopefully glean some creative uh, principles for our lives as well. If you'll pray with me this morning. God, as we've already prayed this morning, as we've asked for blessing, as we've brought hearts, as we've brought items, as we've sent out, as we've celebrated, we pray again that you would um, give us understanding, that it would bloom in our hearts like a tree, that it would put down deep roots, that God, we would not be those that um, have lips that speak your name and your words, but have hearts that are far from you. We pray, God, that we would honor the scriptures, the story, the life of David, that we would have hearts that belong to the true king. And we pray these things for your kingdom and glory. Amen. Amen. So we started off with the hair passage. One, because I simply cannot put the hair passage in a message on Absalom. The guy had a haircut every once in a while because his head got too heavy. And when he cut his hair, it weighed four or five pounds worth of hair. Also in the hair passage is the handsome passage. That Absalom was a looker, as they say. A good-looking man. That he had inherited David's good looks and was pleasing to the eye. He would be a what we would call a rock star. He would be front cover. People would name him sexiest man in Jerusalem. Right? This is what would happen. So we start there. Why? Because we need to know who this absent character is. Because it's very important to understand the other story that I read. Absalom was David's son, the good-looking one, the handsome, what we perhaps call the golden child. The one that the genetic pool blessed to the point that they weren't going to have a hard time in life. Daddy was somebody important, and also, they just look really good. And everyone wants to show them favoritism. The story of Absalom is actually one of the darker stories in the Old Testament. He has a half-brother, Amnon, he has a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon and Tamar have an incident where Amnon violently acts towards Tamar, so much so that it uh, ruins her life. Absalom then spends two years plotting revenge and then kills his brother Amnon, which then estranges him from his father David. So Absalom lives in complete estrangement from David, even though Absalom is David's kind of favorite son. Eventually, his advisors say, you've got to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. He's your boy. You've mourned the death of Abnon. You've forgiven. You need to bring him back. So David says, okay, I'll bring him back. Brings him back. But David doesn't let Absalom come into his presence. He brings him back to the city, but basically makes him stay in the guest village for two years. Finally, his advisor say again, like, you've got to bring him back. You've got to reconcile. You've got to make this right. Bring your boy in. So he brings him in finally, gives him a kiss, and welcomes him. Absalom then continues to stay in Jerusalem, but instead of staying with David in the palace, if you will, he begins to collect his own entourage, his own group of followers. 
And he begins to ride around the city in a chariot with 50 runners, or his posse, his mom, his squad, if you will, right? He has them with him. And he begins to act very kingly with his chariot and his entourage around the city. And then he begins to set up camp at the gates of the city that lead into David's house. And when people would come into those gates, he would meet them like, hey, Chris, what are you doing here? Uh, I, I, I need to see the king. I've got an issue in my village, a dispute about some land, blah, blah, blah. And Absalom said, oh, Chris, you know, the king is super busy. Well, what about one of his judges? Well, there's not really any judges right now. So, so what am I going to do? Oh, I know. Isn't it awful? <laughs> Man, let me help you out, buddy. Man, if I was in charge, this wouldn't happen to you. Oh, man, I'll take care of this. It's cool. Bless you, guys. <laughs> so Absalom did that. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he did. So when we picked it up in, in, in verse 7 of chapter 15, it says, after four years. So Absalom played the long game. For four years, he met everybody at the gates with his posse with his handsomeness and his air and his wonderful sparkling chariot and his good old boy charm. Oh, the king's busy. There's no judges. No one's here to see you. But Absalom cares for you. Here I am for you. He did that for four years. At the end of four years, he says to David, Hey, hey, Dad, I made this vow. You know how important vows are, right? I just going to worship the Lord back there. Can I go do that? Can I be blessing to leave there? David says, go, the Lord be with you. And when he goes, the worship turns into coronation. And he declares himself there and borrows one of David's trusted advisors, kind of like the right-hand man politically for David, borrows him, adds him to the conspiracy, and then declares himself in this city known as Hebron, which is where David had gathered up his kingly movement when he was... Uh, king of Judah. And so it was a symbolic thing. And he declares himself king, and there is where the people are like, oh, well, hey, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. Absalom. We love this guy. He's helped us out for years now. And they declare him. And this is when a messenger comes to David in verse 13, which is our key verse and centering verse this morning. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. When I was reading through these chapters, and I'm like, wow, like this story is full of a lot of violence and deceit, a lot of just horror and awful family dynamics. What a political power plays. And Chris and I were talking, I was like, oh, you gave me Absalom? He's like, you don't have to do Absalom. You don't want to. And I was like, well, let me look at it one more time. Let me read through this story one more time. And this verse is the one that just bubbled up. The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. When we think about the idea of the people of Israel, which is a Biblical term, accurate. But when we think about it as a New Testament church, 
or in the 21st century church that are connected to the people of Israel, that their story is our story, and you begin to get down in there, you think, well, well, who is Israel? I mean, is it literally the nation of Israel? No, at this point it's not. Back then it was, but now, who are the people of Israel? The people of God, the people of promise, the people that are part of this covenant agreement with God, this creation, that they would be the body of God, bearers of the image of Christ in the world. And so you take out Israel for a second and you say, the hearts of God's people are with Absalom. And you say it that way, and it begins to cut a little closer. And you begin to think about who Absalom is, and I begin to think the heart of God's people are with the really good-looking guy. The hearts of God's people are with the shiny, blemish-free, new, exciting, novel leader. Oh, it's amazing. He scratched my back. He's met my felt needs. He's the one. The hearts of God's people were with absent. And so this morning I titled the sermon At the Gate of Our Hearts. At the Gate of Our Hearts. Why? Well, metaphorically I believe that we're always going to have someone handsome and shiny and new at the gate of our hearts, trying to woo us from our faithfulness to the one true king. I believe this will always, always be the case. This morning's sermon is not to say never trust anyone beautiful or anyone with great hair. Right? This isn't a, a uh, knock on anything that seems wonderful or new. But symbolically this morning, I want to talk about Israel a little bit more in the gates of our hearts for a moment. Israel was named Israel after the father of Israel, who is Jacob. He got a new name. Jacob was the father of the 12 sons that became 12 tribes of Israel. But he got a new name. He got a new name when? After he spent all night wrestling with God. And the word Israel actually means struggles with God or wrestles with God. That it's built in. I always, in my early ministry, it was always like, say what we do with the Pharisees, like, oh, the Pharisees, the bad guys. I was making fun of them and not realizing like how noble and righteous and self-disciplined and all the other things they were. You know, we always vilify them. I used to vilify the, the, the Israelites. Oh, the Israelites, they're always messing up. They're always not trusting God. They're always worshiping idols. But built into their name is this process of being human. This wrestling, this struggle, it's always going to be a struggle and a wrestle with God. The wrestling match doesn't end. There will always be some level that we will be wrestling with these things. When you think about David's original anointing, when you think about the life of David, Samuel is looking at the other sons and saying, oh, look how handsome and awesome and strong they are, right? And God said, God doesn't look at what? The outside, it looks at the inside, it looks at the heart. We see this message already built in there. That we're always going to have this tension between the way we think about things, the way that we think, and what God really values. It's always going to be there. You think about this story, and the idea of wrestling with God, and what's at the gates of our hearts. And we tie it in, foreshadowing-wise, to Jesus Christ. Who says where? Where our treasure is, there are what? Our heart is also. 
that nobody can serve two masters, right? They either hate one and love the other, despise one and serve the other. This idea that there's always going to be this wrestling between man and the world and the majesty of the King of Jesus, it's always going to be there. There's always going to be a wrestling between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Will we live in slaves to the system or will we live in the freedom that Yahweh brings? The hearts of God's people are with Absalom. Instead of being the true king, they allow themselves to be wooed by this vision of grandeur and beauty that looked great, but wasn't the true king. Israel struggles with God. There's always, always a wrestling. I bought into the lie early on in my Christian pilgrimage that there is an arriving in the spiritual life. That one day you arrive. That one day, that struggle, you just lay it down and it's never there anymore. Fill in the blank for what that struggle may be. Struggle is the right plural. What will that be? And I realized eventually, <laughs> way into the game, that the idea of arriving somewhere spiritually and just, ah, oh, my destination has been achieved, is an illusion. There is no arrival. There's a constant process of arriving that only occurs through following. There's only following Jesus. There will always be a struggle to some degree. A perfect spouse doesn't eliminate struggle in your faith. And there's no perfect spouses, <laughs> in case you hadn't heard that either. Arriving at the perfect house doesn't remove the struggle of trying to follow Jesus every day. There aren't perfect houses. Perfect gardens, perfect meals, perfect jobs, right? There will always be some struggle in this idea. The struggle then is to say, will we follow the true king? Or will we just listen to the shiny, handsome, without blemish person at the gate of our hearts? This is, this is, this is the struggle, right? It becomes more nuanced and difficult because sometimes our motives in the beginning, we really have a good, beautiful thing that we're striving for. But before we know it, the affection and what we want becomes Lord rather than King Jesus saying, this beautiful thing is a good gift from me that I've given you as an opportunity to bear my image in the world. It, you search, and it's so subtle. Those of you that are on the younger end of the spectrum, still in that process of undergrad majors and post-grad work and all these things that are going on, you know, you have these visions of what you could be, what you could do, what you want to do, those things. Beautiful, wonderful, awesome. Somehow, along the way, you've got to keep guarding yourself so that they don't turn into Absalom. And they themselves become it, and the king does not have your heart. The paycheck, the brass ring, the perfect situation. So how do we combat these things? They never leave. So how do you deal with them? That's the issue. What do we do? Well, if I could shift points of view for just a moment. 
the hearts of God's people were in Absalom. One of the reasons why, and we'll shift points of view, is because David himself was a lazy king. I love David. I love him. He's like pretty much the guy I've written and spoken about most of, in, in all my teaching. But as far as the king goes, he did some really lazy things. Bathsheba happened not because he was lusting over her on the rooftop. Bathsheba happened because in the times that kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem, is what the passage reads in the scriptures. When he should have been out with the soldiers out in the field, he stayed in the palace. The issue wasn't Bathsheba, the issue was he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. In the case of Absalom, how do we combat this wrestling and avoid Absalom controlling the gates of our hearts? Well, one of the things we can do, shifting the point of view, is from the David point of view, keep doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. Keep doing the right things, the simple things. What do I mean by that? Well, David was lazy with reconciliation with Absalom. He didn't bring him to Jerusalem. His counselors made him do that. He had the strength that he knew the right thing to do, ask forgiveness. This is the same David, right, that's already been through sin and confession and forgiveness and restoration and redemption. He knows the cycle, but on a human level, he refused to do it with his son. It came back to bite him. He brings his son back, and then doesn't meet with his son for two years. Imagine that pain in Absalom's heart. Imagine what schemes Absalom hatched in that mind of his. Because we see what happens as soon as he gets reconciled, he immediately goes into a battle plan takeover, right? Do what you need to do, David. Get things right. Get things right. And lastly, David was supposed to appoint judges in Israel, and he hadn't done it. And because he hadn't done it, there was an absence of wisdom. There was a void and a vacuum in the community. And because of that, Absalom could fill that vacuum and that void. Instead of the wisdom of the king being dispensed by just doing what you're supposed to do, something else entered in. In my life, I've found when I've got caught in a bad habit of bad spiritual practices, when I'm in a place where I, it's not healthy, I can almost always trace it back to little steps I made of disobedience or laziness, where I didn't do what I should have been doing, the right things, and neglected them, and something else slithered into the vacuum. Almost always. In this wrestling with following God and honoring God and keeping God as King of the heart, Jesus Christ, Lord, ruling in here, what's at the gate of our hearts? One of the ways we combat it is to simply stay faithful and obedient in the little things that we're supposed to be doing and not give the room for Absalom to come in and woo us. But also, as we round the corner, but also, I don't want to read too much into it. But, can you imagine Absalom's pitch to the people at the gates? I imagine it went something like, oh, we already have some of it when he says, oh man, I wish it weren't this way. Absalom was in charge. He's already playing that card. But how about this one? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, David's been king for a while. What's he done for you lately? What's David done for you lately? 
Has he blessed you in a while? Has he, have you seen him in a while? When's the last victory over the Philistines? I mean, Goliath was a long time ago. What's David done for you lately? When I begin to keep track of God and His blessings on my life and where I think He's been, oh, yeah, it's good, thanks. That circumstance went the way that I wanted. Very good, God. You received a check mark of my approval of your behavior in my life today. Oh, that one, those circumstances fell nicely for me. Good job, right? And you begin to do that. But what if it doesn't fall quite that way? What if the checklist of your expectations is not being met? How do you react? When you begin to weigh God on the scales, you would do that. You never do that. Come on, God, I need a win, huh? Anyway, seriously. Are the ACs out? Oh, perfect. I'm already eating ramen, and now I'm eating ramen. And now you're eating ramen. Awesome. But we never weigh God like that. When we think we have God's favor with him, we begin to do this, we begin to do this idea of what's David done for me? What's God done for me? And Absalom looks so much more attractive when you begin to ask those kind of questions. It's way easier to get Absalom control of the heart when you're already thinking about this deal over here's kind of not getting out real great right now. I promised God I would serve him. I would do this, I do this. And this is how it's turning out. This is my life. Huh. This is not what I pictured. I made some zealous promises and some prayers and some things, and this is what I'm getting? Speak to me again about this deal you had for me, actually. I'm listening a little bit now. New, exciting, shiny, perfect blemish. Hmm. Without blemish. Hmm. What a handsome man. As we saw in the Garden of Eden, the fruit that looks the best uh, may create the biggest mess, right? As we've seen all along, this technique of Absalom's is the same technique that we humans will always struggle with. So instead of asking ourselves, what has God or David done for us lately? We should ask ourselves, what is the heart of the king for me right now? You see, because our key verse this morning is, the hearts of God's people were of Absalom, to which we would now say, that wasn't a good thing. So then we have to ask, where should the hearts of God's people be? And our good Sunday school Christian answer would be, the hearts of God's people should be with God. Or Jesus, right? When in doubt, say Jesus. The hearts of God's people should be with Jesus, with God. And it's right, it's correct. But... It's so big and ambiguous just unhelpful. It sounds great. Instead, I want to say this morning, where should the hearts of God's people with God? What does that mean? God's people should have hearts for God's people. If I understand the life of Christ and understand the heart of God throughout the narrative of scriptures, to show that our hearts truly belong to God means that we have to show that we have a heart for people. The hearts of God's people should be with people. Now, that's vague too. Because guess what people are made up of? Persons. Right? 
And so this morning I would like to say, as we begin to close, the hearts of God's people should be with people, and that means not abstract humanity, not the, I love people. Oh, we all love people, okay? There's a, I mean, there's a segment of people that would vocally say I hate people, right? <laughs> that they're out there. You know, most of them are making many messages on, 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 on social media. They're there, okay? I get that. But most of us, particularly on a Sunday morning, gathered at church every week, say, oh, I love people. But I want to say that the hearts of God's people must be with the people that make up people. Persons. Individuals with names. Humans. At the heart of this story is human relationship. David and Absalom and the pain and the forgiveness and the redemption and what needed to happen there on a human, face-to-face, -face, vocal, present level. That they needed to be together and to love each other and forgive and make things right. The hearts of God's people are the Absalom. Okay, well, where should it be? It should be with people. And when God wanted a man after his own heart, and he anointed David, it's because of David's humility, and David's love, and you've seen his character throughout the sermon series. When I'm not loving people, when I'm not really loving a person face to face, tangibly, not in the abstract, right? Oh, I love them. <laughs> what have you done to love them? When I'm not loving people, it usually means I've listened to someone or something else at the gate of my heart. Something else. Whether it's absolute in the form of my time, that my time is the shiny, beautiful thing that I must protect and follow. My resources, or these days my presence, S-E-N-C-E, -E, not Christmas presents. Mm -hmm. My presence, my ability to de-screen mm -hmm. and hide a screen. My presence and the ability to listen. <clears throat> to hear someone speak to you. To hear what they're actually saying. Okay. And not be formulating my next retort by a witty <laughs> remark to hear what their heart is actually saying. That my heart belongs to God. Because it belongs to God, it belongs to these people. I'll close with a story because we're in a church building and I'm a pastor, so that's the right thing to do. <laughs> my wife Shannon's here with me. Uh, we've been married 21 years. Thank you very much. I know I look like I'm 28, so that's a little weird. Right? <laughs> and then, you know how to work it in second grade, what can I say? All right, so, we met uh, in college, and then right after we met, I fell for her, and she liked me as a friend. It was painful, we worked through that. Um, I'm not a, I'm a case study in the exemption, boys. Okay, so, I made it, and we began to date at summer camp. We worked summer camp together. And summer camp is where we fell in love and began dating, so that euphoria of new relationship. And so it was every morning for 10 weeks together at these weeks of camp. Every morning was get up, do your things, do your duties, do everything you needed to do. And at night, it was always date night for us. And it was awesome. Every meal was, at least I could sit with Shannon 
at mealtime. This is great. We can hang out. We can have a relationship. This is awesome. You know, oh, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it was ooey gooey all the way for me. Okay, so it was wonderful. However, in the midst of the ten weeks of camp, the director said, "Hey, you guys need to know that we have a different week of camp coming up. It's called Camp Hope. Instead of being with." fifth graders or ninth graders or whatever, this is a camp that's been in existence at our, at our facility for 30 some years. And camp Hope is for uh, adults that are mentally or physically sick. And uh, they have some special needs and they'll be coming in. And I was like, Ooh, I have no idea. I don't know what to do. I've never been in this situation. So don't worry. Just be yourself do what you've always done. They bring in professional people with them. All you need to do is to show up and, you know, light a light campfires and went to the normal. That's basically what I did. And floated in the chain. So just be what you want to do. And I was like, okay, this is great. Right? So the camp's coming in. And they said, oh, by the way, you have assigned seating during the meals because you, we need to keep the same pattern for the campers that are coming in. We have to have the same pattern. You can't break it. I was like, okay. So Shannon and I had to sit in separate places. Couldn't sit together in minutes. And oh, by the way, meals take forever. Instead of sneaking in 30 or 40 minutes after every meal with Shannon, the meals would take an hour and a half, two hours from start to finish. So no extra time with Shannon. And the evening activities, yeah, they take a lot longer too because everything took longer. And I was like, oh no, I don't like this. I'm the one with Shannon, and these people are taking me from so I got assigned to take at Camp Hope. And at Camp Hope, my two new friends were Tommy and Nathan. Nathan was 17. He was full of boundless energy. And Nathan wanted you to know two things. Okay? He wanted to know two things because two things, he repeated everything. He repeated everything. All right? So he wanted to know two things. He wanted to know that he was awesome. Right? And he wants you to know that most girls liked him. <laughs> right? And so he would bounce, had this energy, and he'd come up to me, hey Matt, hey Matt. And like, what's up, baby? And he's like, I'm awesome, I'm awesome. I mean, tell me that. Like, That's great, man. You see her? You see her? He's like, yes, I see her. She likes me. She likes me. <laughs> and he would do that every day. It was, <laughs> it cracked me up. I mean, he was so confident. I wish I had it. <laughs> and the other guy right next to me was Tom. Tommy was in his 50s, and Tommy had about uh, the mental development of a five-year-old. And Tommy had been kind of taken care of by um, caretakers. I know it's a hard job, but kind of, kind of the, the bare minimum. So he just had, he buzzed his hair, and gave him, he still wore glasses that were 40 years old. Uh, his body had atrophied a lot, so his, his fingers were kind of, uh, I'm used to doing a lot of manual dexterity things, kind of uh, just flabby and just atrophy. And, and he had been coming to Camp Hope the entire time that they had had. And he loved going out on the boat in the lake one day. And he loved the food at Camp Hope, which was awful. Because they had to remove all sugar and salt from the diet. It was some of the worst food in the area for me. But he loved it. Tommy had these old horn rimmed glasses, and he would sit down to me with his. You know, he didn't get the suns, he was white, his body wasn't getting used on, he just would sit. But Camp Hopeman, he finally got out. And so he would sit down next to me, and every night he, he would adjust his glasses and he would take one bite of that food and he goes, that's good. 
and say, who made that? I said, the cooks. The cooks made it. I mean, the cooks. They loved it. And then he would ask, when are we going to do the boats? I'd say, Wednesday, Tom. We're going to do the boats on Wednesday. And then after Wednesday, he'd say, did you see me on the boat? <laughs> I saw you, Tommy. I wait, remember? I like the boats. And then if you buy food, that's good. We made that. It was a great week, but it was a week away from Shannon. I was getting a bit antsy. <clears throat> a bit antsy, if you will. Final night came, and uh, I sit down at my table, and I look at Nathan, and I go, You're awesome. He was like, I'm awesome. <laughs> and I sat down with Tommy, I took a bite before he could take a bite. And I looked at him, and I said, That is good! Who made that? <laughs> and he looked at me, and he's like, Stole my line. <laughs> like, he goes to the cooks. <laughs> he knew. So I had a rapport and a friendship, right? And so I'm getting through this last meal together. And I'm like, okay, finally, we can shut down the camp program and get back to my regular schedule, flirting and building a relationship with hopefully my future wife, right? And then the camp director, who's seated next to me, stands up and goes, tonight's dinner's going to be a little longer. And I was like, you. We're going to do communion together. And in my head, as a young theological entrepreneur, I was like, communion? They don't understand communion. Why would they do communion? And then she said, and we're going to make it a little different. Give everybody a treat. We're going to have orange shoes and sticky buns for the elements. So then I'm like, what? First of all, they don't understand communion. And now you're like, heretical. Orange juice. And I said, oh, this is awful. I can't believe you're doing this. So then she explains communion, takes her time. Pass out the orange juice glasses to everybody. He's smashing all oh, the sticky ones. I'm like, this is be crazy. So then we take communion. I'm looking at Shannon, and she's doing a nice, sweet person to her table. And I'm like, let's go. It's the sacrilegious and long and everything else. And I say that, and I'm like, finally, we're done. And then the camp director says, now let's wash your hands because we probably got them sticky from the cinnamon bun. So let's pass around the bag. So they pass, and I'm like, I'm about to explode. I'm like, you get me out of this room. I've been good for a week, but seriously. And then I look over, and the camp director's weeping. Oh, I'm like, and I look over, and Tommy was unable to wash his own hands. And uh, so Nathan had taken the dirty dish rag and put it around his finger and was getting every cuticle clean. Yeah. And repeating himself, of course. Well, that's okay. That's okay. I'll get I'll get I'll clean I'll clean And he's cleaning every one of his fingers. And I'm like, hmm. Right? And 22 years later, when I think about Ashley, right? The hearts God's people, absolutely. And here I am, Christian, working in ministry, being a leader, right? In love with a beautiful woman that became my wife of 21 years, and this is great, and that's beautiful, and that's awesome, and that's great, but yet, my heart was with, not with King Jesus. Not with King Jesus. You know whose heart was with King Jesus? Maybe. As a watch. And that's the wrestle. That's the struggle every day for me. Can I be so present 
that my heart that supposedly belongs to the king can show its belongingness to the king and the way that I love the persons that are around me. Or, will I look at a shiny and beautiful and wonderful thing, Absalom, and allow them to redirect my heart away from what I should be doing? In your search for your future and that thing that you're striving for, make sure King Jesus is still Lord of that process and the steps along the way. At the gate of your hearts, Absalom always waits. We pray for this week. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for the grace that you have tangibly demonstrated in my life, that you have repeatedly caught me in my pride, repeatedly caught me in my self-centeredness, God, that you have repeatedly, through your spirit, gently pointed out that I'm quick to judge you. And in that judging, uh, let other desires supplant the throne of my heart. And um, so this morning I confess I'm thankful for your grace. God, at the gate of our hearts, there's always a wrestling with what we will trust and believe in, where we will place our values. God, this morning as we stand poised at the beginning of a new semester, a new adventure, as we bless books, as we think about being sanctified and set apart for your kingdom, God, may our hearts belong to you because they belong to you and they, they belong to the people in our lives. As we become educated, when we serve people with that education, as we learn, as we grow, as we give, God, May it not be towards Absalom, but may it be towards King Jesus and the kingdom of grace and hope and peace and justice. And the sheep who love people. So thank you for this morning. And we pray these things for your kingdom and glory. Amen. Amen.